Oh man, Derek, I had a wild dream last night. Man, me too. This guy was chasing me. He was taunting me about all of my millennial opinions. He had a goatee. Wait, was he bald? Yeah, and he had a pair of grilling tongs that he was like snapping at me as he was running. Yeah, tongs. Yeah, I, I got only got like two hours of sleep because that motherfucker. Who was that? Oh, damn. I don't know what's going on, man, but shit's getting kind of creepy. I'm your grill master now, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to primetime, bitch. <laughs> all right, we got another episode of Watch If You Dare coming at y'all this week. The map says you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I can't wait till we talk about the later entries in this series, because uh, that's where we can just really clown on it. For sure. So, yeah, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast uh, with your boy Aaron, the movie monster boy, and Derek, the coward. We are going to be discussing... Discussing a Nightmare on Elm Street from Wes Craven. This is a biggie. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is a real biggie. This is the first Wes Craven that we've done so far too, which is kind of wild. Yep. So yeah, we have a special guest this week with us. We have Damien Potesta, who's one of my former co-workers, who is a huge Freddy head. Huge. Yes. Understatement. <laughs> Aaron described you as like a super fan for years and years. Yeah, it, it was probably unhealthy, the level of fan I was back in the 80s of this franchise. Yeah, I have definitely seen pictures of you with your glove. You have shown me pictures of your Freddy doll. So, yes, definitely a super fan. Yeah. But yeah, tell us a little bit about your background with horror, Damien, and kind of how you like got into the genre. Because us being co-workers, we spent a lot of time talking about movies. Um, a lot of time talking about horror specifically. So give us a little bit of background on like how you dig the genre and how you got into it. First of all, thanks for having me on here. I've been a fan of the podcast since you guys started. Absolutely. It's long overdue. Hell yeah. And I'm still a fan, even though you guys dogged on me on the Omen episode. <laughs> I have been good, and I have not made an Omen joke yet, and I was refraining <laughs> from doing it. That's all right. I grew up with that. So, uh, obviously, I'm a tad bit older than you guys, so uh, I was actually alive when that movie came out. Oh, man. Yeah, so that, that kind of damaged my childhood a little bit. But, uh, you know, initially, as a kid, I wasn't a big horror movie fan. My sister was. So anytime it was movie night and the parents approved of something that came on TV, we watched it. A lot of the movies that you guys even talked about, I grew up watching and hating that I was watching them. It's Alive, Black Christmas, Burnt Offerings, Exorcist. Hell yeah. The Exorcist Italian ripoff Beyond the Door. Yes. I mentioned that one a couple episodes back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that one I think actually hit TV long before The Exorcist did in the 70s. And I remember uh, my sister watching it and I was laying behind my dad screaming my head off because of the guttural demonic sounds coming out of her. <laughs> and so those movies just as a kid, I wasn't a fan of them initially. But then I think it was after, after Thanksgiving in 78, my cousins and my sister and I we went to go see Halloween. That was a different kind of movie. It was, you know, it wasn't about demon possession. Yeah. Which, uh, that was a certain thing that just really uh, freaked me out. And uh, it was just something about that particular movie because now it was more real. It was horror that could happen in your house. It was the boogeyman. Yeah. Yeah, it changed the game in so many ways. Yeah, it wasn't supernatural. And although supernatural is, of course, scary, something about this guy walking around your neighborhood, it was still, you know, for the, the age that I was, which at the time was only 11, I just found it to be so exciting. And again, it wasn't a demonic movie, so it kind of started to change my my view. And then I think the following year, same group of, of family, we went to go see Alien. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, you know, it's alien, but it's Michael Myers, man. It's it's this thing hiding in the shadows. Yeah. And it's killing just for no reason. Yeah. So that that sort of genre of horror, I, I found myself liking. And then uh, Friday the 13th hit. Now, granted, I'm not going to the theaters by myself to see these. Even when Friday the 13th came out in 80, I was only 13. But I used to get dragged a lot to go see him with my sister. <laughs> so through going and seeing him with her, I started to enjoy the genre more. Through the early block of the 80s, we started to see the Friday the 13th movies, Halloween sequels, Prom Night, The Fog, gosh, The Thing. Something that I always like asking guests we have that were around when these movies really first came out, right? Was the impact almost right of way or was there more of it kind of had to stay in the oven a little bit for pop culture to really process the importance of these movies? Like you made it sound like Halloween was just right off the bat paradigm shifting for everyone, but... Was that the same way with stuff like Alien or Friday the 13th as well? Or are there a lot of movies that aged well? So to speak to pop culture, because of my age, I wasn't involved that much or aware of what pop culture was. Right. Until the movie that we're talking about today hit. Yeah. Because there's there's a whole different thing that helped shift A Nightmare on Elm Street into pop culture. And we'll talk, you know, I'm sure you want to talk about it in a second. But Halloween and those movies, they didn't really have that I remember. You know, I don't remember Fangoria being around there yet. I don't remember about horror movie conventions. But I do remember conversations with friends and how this particular movie was, you know, we're still talking about Halloween and Alien, were so different and scary because, you know, you got to remember that Exorcist came out in 73 and that was kind of the movie that everybody talked about through the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Every horror movie that came out after that was compared to The Exorcist until Halloween because it was so such a vastly different movie and then that kicked off the, the slasher genre. So amongst the friends of mine and I, our conversations was more about like the boogeyman's going to get you like the kid says in the movie because again, any creepy guy standing around a corner or behind a bush is more real than a 13-year-old girl spitting green plea soup at you and spinning her head around. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And and people would dress as Michael Myers just, you know, during Halloween just to freak people out, of course, and stand at the edge of the street. Because that is something that I do miss. I don't know how this was for you, Aaron, but I feel like our generation caught the very tail end of like word of mouth when it comes to horror through your friends. It wasn't really until I was about 12 or 13 where like, oh, I could just look it up on the internet and I just know what the impact of yeah. this movie was. But like, I do remember from like about nine years old to 12. You had to hear about it from somebody. It was a lot of word of mouth. Yeah. You had to like see the box. Yeah. Sitting on the rack at a, like a video rental Blockbuster, store. And like yeah. just get the curiosity of like, what is this? Yeah. And I miss that mystery around horror because it made it almost like more of a taboo, unobtainable thing. You're already not supposed to be watching these movies at that age. But I mean, I did and I'm sure Aaron did and like a lot of our friends did. But then on top of that, you have these other friends being like, oh, my 15 year old brother or sister like got me to watch this movie and guys, you can't handle it. It'll make you puke. It'll yeah. make you run out of the room screaming. So then in our like 10 year old brains, like next slumber party, someone needs to trick their parents and like renting this movie at the local blockbuster. And we got to see what this is about. I do miss that mystique around horror, which I feel like adds credence to. I mean, these movies are timeless, like even going back and watching Nightmare on Elm Street. I get what you're saying, though, but they move from being, like, urban legend. Yeah, exactly. To, I can literally get on IMDb and, like, toggle over to, like, the top 250 list for horror specifically, and then there's just, like, pff, a list of shit to check out. Yeah, we knew something like Get Out or Hereditary was a classic 
overnight just because the internet and critics posting all over the internet and Twitter and IMDb. Yeah, yeah, but there wasn't that like slow urban legend style kind of build of its reputation over time like so many exactly. early movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I do miss that. Yeah, I, did, I, I wasn't aware of these movies. That, I mean, when I was getting dragged to go see Halloween or Alien, I had no idea what I was going to go see. Yeah. My cousins and my sister were dragging me to go see this movie. <laughs> Seeing Alien in theaters at like too young of age. And having no idea what you're getting into. God. That sounds great. <laughs> that would have broke my right. brain. I, yeah, I think the scene that would have broke my brain is when the uh, android has like been hacked to pieces and they like yeah. reboot it so it can talk to them, but it's like just a head. I'm like, that would have just yeah. fucked with me so much. I think I've mentioned that on the show, but when I was young, like maybe six, seven, and saw Alien for the first time, the chestburster scene didn't get me because for some reason, through pop culture osmosis, like I knew about that scene already. I think they spoofed it on like animaniacs like yeah yeah they spoofed it in space balls like it's been spoofed yeah. before so many times but the scene that got me was the one where yafet koto like knocks ian holmes fucking head off and all the white milk starts squirting everywhere and his like headless body is freaking <laughs> yeah. out that yeah. lit my shit up when i was a kid because i was absolutely <laughs> not expecting that i absolutely would not drink milk or eat cereal for like months after that fucking movie because of that scene <laughs> Yeah, Aaron and I, and I think we brought this up on another episode recently, but like we did have a conversation with a couple friends, gun to head, top five or top 10, like movies you would pick like as your personal favorite, but also ones that maybe would be on like a top 300 ever. And one of them for me is Alien. And I didn't see Alien start to finish. I didn't see Alien until I was 20 something years old, way after the fact. And after I knew all the pop culture goofs and everything it spoofs on. And even then that movie was such an incredible horror movie that it stuck with me that well, that like it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a difference when you're watching horror between seeing it in bits and pieces on and off TV was as you're growing up and catching snatches of it. And like having to sit down, watch the entire thing start to finish in one session and like wrapped up in that, in the moment start, yeah. finish the impact is definitely different yeah i wasn't i was in my teens when i could actually watch the exorcist start to finish because that movie had such a legacy behind it it was talked about so much and bits and pieces of it were actually shown on tv enough to where i knew i didn't want to have any fucking part of this movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> both of my grandparents were religious if i spent the night at either one of those it always conversations about the bible the apocalypse and satan's coming and all this and then this movie the exorcist which shows this kid being demonically possessed and i just carry that image of linda blair in her face in my head, I mean, to this day, I have problems sleeping facing towards the edge of the bed because I have a, this childhood fear that I'm going to open my eyes and fucking Linda Blair's face is staring at me. <laughs> I mean, it is cliche to say, but like one of the scariest jump scares ever to this day for me is hearing the thumping noise and then it cuts to the stairs and she does the spider crawl down the stairs with her mouth wide open. Yeah. That fucking jump scare is still horrifying to me. And like, yeah, of course, we all know 
know The Exorcist is scary, but you know, it has that reputation for a reason. <laughs> and that wasn't even in the movie originally. That was cut. Yeah, out. that was actually cut. Yeah. That was the director's cut. Yeah. So I never saw that until my 30s, I think, yeah. when the director's cut came out. And I thought, why the hell did they cut this out? It is Was it time that they cut it out? It was the wires. The effects didn't look great. They couldn't really figure out a way to paint the wires out at the time. And so they just ditched that effect altogether. But later, Freaking can go back and digitally erase the wires and the harness and all that. And they added it back in. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, slasher movies were huge in the 80s, and it it was on the heels of, of course, a number of killings all around the country, right? You guys talked about all the the serial killers. By the time Elm Street came around in 84, we've had, what, four Friday the 13th movies. By that point, yeah. Three Halloween movies. The the various other non-franchise, well, that later became on franchise movies like Prom Night. And so the masked killing machine person was kind of starting to run its course yeah. And, yeah. and getting old. And I think when Elm Street hit, I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it on HBO. It was just something about this guy. He's not a killing machine with a mask on his face that doesn't go down. This is a guy with a personality. Yeah. This is a guy that is going to kill you, but he's going to fuck with you first, like a yeah. cat playing with a with a mouse. So, I mean, he could kill you right now, but he's he's going to take pleasure in watching you get tortured. Yeah. 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 And feed off the fear. Yeah. Um, one last question I had for you. Given that you have kind of been watching these movies through a couple decades, are you impartial to any decades? Like, are you the type of person who, because you kind of grew up in the heyday of the 80s, the 80s horror is the golden era of horror to you? Or does every era have its like highs and lows to you? Every era has its highs and lows. So this the 70s, again, I hated horror because it was forced on me. <laughs> right. But now that I get to go back and revisit it and up through a lot of what you guys have done like i completely forgot about black christmas yeah you guys do an episode on it. i went back and watched it and i remembered why that movie scared the shit out of me as a kid bro i didn't even know it existed until like aaron had us do it and that movie is also possibly in like now my top 10 or 25 movies ever yeah. like i made this comparison on on the episode but like to me that is like the dinosaur junior of horror if like halloween <laughs> is the nirvana of horror like you know halloween deserves all the credit it gets but like black christmas is like proto slasher like takes all those early tropes and did it back in 1974 like yeah yeah black christmas blew me away yeah so i can reflect back on those movies and enjoy them all now from an adult and then i remember them scaring me as a kid and that makes it fun again too for me 80s is the cherry on the top for horror because I got to watch the genre change from faceless slasher to these sort of personality guys. Yeah. Yeah. For lack of a better word. Again, you know, the masked killer of Michael Myers and Jason changes into Freddy, which and then after that we get possessed dolls and Yeah, you get Chucky, you get Pinhead, you get all these characters who like with personality. Personality to them, yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think yeah. about that. That's a good perspective. But yeah, so I guess we'll jump into our recommendation section now, huh? Guest always goes first. So, Damien, do you have like any other horror outside of Nightmare on Elm Street that like you've delved into recently? You know, I, I don't watch as, as as often as probably you guys do, and definitely not Aaron. You know, I occasionally throw something in. I wanted to revisit uh, some '70s, so I watched The Car. Hell yeah! And it's it's a fun movie. It's goofy as shit. James Brolin. You know, we got Thanos's father. His is also his creepily, almost his twin. Yeah, that's a fun <laughs> movie. It's just sort of demonic demon. Car. 
car driving around this small town killing people. I've never heard of this movie. <laughs> it looks great. <laughs> yeah, you check it out. It's it's a fun one. I recently watched The Vatican Tapes. That wasn't that good. Uh, mm. It was okay. Yeah. What'd you think of that ending? The ending did actually make their sequel, so I kind of want to see where they go with it. Okay. Because the Antichrist now lives on Earth, so I kind of wanted to see where they went with it. But the movie itself was not very scary at all. Wait, I guess, no, I'm thinking of a different movie. The Vatican Tapes is not the one that literally just cuts to, like, a black background with some white text that just says, if you want to learn more, go to this website. Mm. I, yeah, I'm thinking of a different movie then. Okay, no. Never mind. Yeah, no, this is some girl who gets possessed because she went and got an antibiotic shot because she cut her finger. What? Oh <laughs> yeah. That's some COVID conspiracy yeah, that, theory that shit Yeah, that sounds right like there. some anti-vax <laughs> Oh, I've been watching The Haunting of Hill House. Hell yeah. <sighs> Fuck, that is so good. Something I'm still trying to get Derek to watch. So fucking yeah. good. It looks too scary for me. Did they get a second season? So there is a second season, but it's anthology style where uh. the second Second season is a completely different story. It reuses a lot of the same cast, but they're playing completely different characters. Like, it's a totally different story, different timeline, everything from scratch. So it's doing an American horror story kind of thing. Essentially, yeah, but it's still kind of based around a haunting. So it's based on some E.L. James stuff, I believe, okay. this time. That was brilliant. That was absolutely fantastic. And then the yeah. other thing I watched, I know this is recommendations. Some of you guys your age might want to watch them. I thought they were dog turds. I watched the entire Resident Evil series, and Jesus Christ, <laughs> those fucking movies are horrible. Oh, they're trash, but they could be fun. We're going to circle back <laughs> around to that yeah. in a minute, and that's all I'll say. I'm a big Resident Evil video game Gamer. fan. The Resident yeah. Evil series is one of my favorite series of video games, because I've been a Resident Evil fan since I was a teenager, and so I was a teenager, already a fan of the video games when the first movie and the second movie came out, and at the time, my favorite one was Resident Evil 3 Nemesis, and the second movie is all about Nemesis. And so I was yeah. hype as shit. And then I went to see it in theaters. Like I was so disappointed. <laughs> but like, I will admit going back, it's total trash horror, but it's so fun that I, I kind of enjoy it. I kind of find them endearing. Yeah. But yeah, they're, they're not great. I was kind of thankful for the sixth movie in that they went and recapped the whole series. And I went, oh, that's what was going on. Because it's so <laughs> muddy. Yeah. 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 If yeah. you like trash horror, fine. Mila Jovovich <laughs> gets work because of her husband. Yeah. I'm still curious in an alternate universe what the George Romero version of that movie Man, would have looked that like. That would have been cool. Because it would have been a completely different thing yeah. altogether. I am curious to see what the show that they're filming now for Resident Evil like it seems like it has a budget it's doing like the Netflix thing. Well the show and the movie reboot that's about to happen. Oh I didn't realize that there was a movie. Yeah okay. they're rebooting the movie series with some pretty big people and I think it comes out next year maybe. They're filming it right now. Is it going to tie into the series or is the series a separate thing? I think the series is a separate thing. Okay well cool I'll be on the lookout for them. So it's ignoring the movies completely. Yeah yeah the series I think is going to be a lot more like the video game because I think the first series the whole premise is them going to the Spencer estate back in 1996 like in the setting of the first game okay so it's going to be like period yeah all right cool cool Damien you got any other recommendations uh the only other thing is that I've been uh I watched the first episode and I need to finish watching it Stephen King's The Outsider yes the book was fantastic I was a little upset that the first episode kind of blew through the first half of the book pretty quickly. So I was kind of concerned of where they were going to go and how much was going to be outside of the book after that. I don't know if you've watched the whole thing. I saw the whole thing. It stays pretty 
close to the book. There are maybe like two extra characters that are made up for the show to kind of help some of the other characters along. But for the most part, it sticks with the book pretty well but yeah I mean it does jump to the point pretty quickly instead of doing as much setup as what the book seems to do yeah. but yeah I'm curious to know your thoughts like once you get to the end of it and you can kind of see the entire picture especially since you have read the book I'm curious to know what your thoughts are okay. cool Derek why don't you go ahead and go next so uh, my recommendations I don't really have anything concrete this week and I know I just gave you shit for that on the last episode Aaron so mine are a little weird and probably more horror adjacent maybe even more geared towards our younger listeners although you know i'm sure plenty of people uh at least aaron and i's age can appreciate this stuff but first recommendation actually is i went on a stretch where i watched a shit ton of key and peel sketches on youtube (laughs) okay they've been uploading (laughs) like all their sketches every day still to their youtube channel something i noticed going through all the sketches is jordan peel's love of horror and the influences of horror Oh, it's all there. All over those fucking sketches. Yeah, totally. sure. Like you have like Substitute Teacher, which granted the Substitute Teacher 1 and 2 are like two of the best sketch comedy things ever. But then you get to like the Make-A-Wish kid. Yeah. Where like Jordan Peele <laughs> plays like a, a dying Make-A-Wish kid who's demonic. That is straight up like comedy horror and like it's pretty fucking dark. I remember when he announced that he was making Get Out and so many people were like, the fuck? Like he's making a horror movie? Yeah. And I kept having to tell people like, yeah, Go back and watch Key and Peele. Watch that fucking sketch where they're clowning on family matters and the executive shoots himself in the head because Steve Urkel has psychic powers and shit. Yeah. That's straight up horror stuff. He's always been a horror fan and it comes out in the show for sure. Even the sketches that aren't like obviously riffing on some type of horror movie go in really dark directions. Like people kill each other like so many times in those sketches and like shit goes from zero to 60. Like, you said Aaron surely I'm not the only one who's like catching like how kind of dark Key and Peele sketches have gotten especially for like Comedy Central like primetime sketch show and sure enough when I was googling around I pulled up a New York Post article back from March 2019 that Sarah Stewart wrote and it's the how us director Jordan Peele honed his horror chops on Key and Peele and she actually did what I was hoping she would do she listed 10 skits from various seasons of the show where you can really see the horror influence from Jordan Peele so I'll just read through the ones that she listed so you can YouTube them. Keen Peel White Zombies, Continental Breakfast, Roommate Meeting. It like straight up has like an apparition from the ring in it, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Sexy Vampires, Baby Forest, which is Jordan Peel as a little toddler doing like a Forrest Whitaker impression and being really dark and cryptic. Make-A-Wish, which I brought up earlier. Psycho Clown, which I think is like a riff on a lot of slasher movies and Saw. Of course, the Gremlins 2 Brainstorm that we played audio from <laughs> on our gremlins episode that shit is still one of the funniest things i did in my opinion a non-scary horror movie if i remember correctly in that sketch they just saw a horror movie at the theaters and they're walking home from the horror movie and like shit goes crazy movie hecklers and those are just the ones that she listed on this article but there are a couple other ones that i I remember just going through all their sketches a lot of them took some pretty dark turns or just straight up had like horror in it so yeah yeah, if you're looking for like again some light horror elements but you still want to have a good laugh just go on youtube 
YouTube and like search Key and Peele sketches. Like I said, even to this day, I think they're still uploading sketches on the YouTube channel. That's all I got. All right, cool, cool. I've got two movies to mention and then a third thing, which I mentioned we'll kind of circle back around to. So this month I have been in the mindset of trying to watch more movies by black writers and directors. And just in general, I've been kind of on a Spike Lee kick again since my wife hasn't really seen a ton of his movies. We've been kind of going back through and watching those. For whatever reason, I scrolled past Vampire in Brooklyn on Hulu the other day. I haven't seen that in years and we had just watched another Eddie Murphy movie recently as well and we were doing Nightmare on Elm Street for this episode so I was like alright that's more Wes Craven like let me let me revisit this movie and that movie I think holds up pretty fucking well all the vampire stuff in it really works in my opinion and the movie's a lot of fun until about midway through where Eddie Murphy then shows up in makeup playing multiple characters and the movie kinda comes to a stop a little bit for him just to kind of vamp and M improv as these different characters but then it kind of picks right back up with the vampire stuff and goes from there but the entire idea of like ancient Egyptian African vampires that made their way to the new world and were in the Caribbean and then came to America like all of that is super interesting kind of background so I always fucking forget that Wes Craven directed that yeah the other thing I forget is that still counts as a horror movie like no it totally does yeah it's funny yeah I always think it's a horror comedy instead of a comedy horror and it's totally more of a comedy horror yeah eddie murphy dressed up as a preacher yelling like the devil's good love evil like that shit's goofy but the actual horror horror stuff in it is still pretty solid the makeup's really good the effects are good angela bassett is slamming hot in that movie john witherspoon fucking mr jones from friday is great and hilarious and crazy enough Jesu Garcia who plays Rod in fucking Nightmare on Elm Street that we're about to talk about is also in that movie playing a detective does he still have that ridiculous greaser accent <laughs> basically yeah so yeah that was a lot of fun to go back and rewatch i haven't seen that since i was probably 10 11 years old other one i watched this is more horror adjacent was summer of sam from Spike Lee. It's specifically about the son of Sam Killer in the 70s in New York. And uh, it's got John Leguizamo, Adrian Brody, and Mira Sorvino in it. And like half the cast of Do the Right Thing and then half the cast of The Fucking Sopranos. <laughs> so it's like a wild mix of people in that movie. It's been years since I've seen it as well. But man, I did not expect there to be so many like current vibes from our past year of life like the quarantine and isolation vibes oh everybody's gotta stay inside don't go out there's a killer out there like if you go out you're gonna get you know murdered businesses and like social hotspots shutting down because of the murderer and just like fear of your neighbors and paranoia and all that all of that current covid shit that we're like dealing with and have been dealing with for this past year like so much of that is in this movie and it was all like from a serial killer standpoint yeah and as much as like son of sam turned out to be like such a dipshit yeah (laughs) such a dipshit he really did freeze new york for that full summer like i remember hearing that people were like cutting their hairs a certain way because there was this rumor that he only went after like blondes or brunettes or something so like women were going to hair salons and just completely changing their hair like wild stuff like that and have curfews and everything yeah damien correct me if i'm wrong i know i asked you 
about Zodiac because you grew up in the Bay Area mostly. And I think I remember you saying that Zodiac was maybe a little bit too early for you to remember, but that you did remember some Night Stalker stuff. Oh, fuck. Because <laughs> he was mostly in L.A., but then moved up to the Bay Area yeah. and started freaking people out up there. And Feinstein, like when she was the mayor, kind of bungled some of that. And the investigation was weird because of all the different jurisdictions and everything. I think I remember you telling me you remembered some of that. I actually remember a little bit of both. Uh, I remember some news broadcasts. I remember conversations with my dad, you know, because I was as a kid, he's going to be freaked out if I'm going to step out and he's going to get murdered. Yeah. But I, I do remember being talked about on the news uh, and conversations that my parents were having with, you know, neighbors and things like that. But for the most part, as a kid, my dad was like, ah, oh, you don't have to worry about that. You know, you're a kid and they're going to find him soon. Kind of blew it off kind of thing. Yeah. But I, but I do have some memories of it being in the news in the Bay Area for sure. Yeah. And that's wild shit that I guess Derek and I. I can't necessarily relate to because even though there are still serial killers out there, there's just not the same level of community-wide paranoia and fear that locks down an entire city and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. More, more the thing that we deal with or grew up with was mass shooters. Right. Yeah. At school. Yeah. Having drills for that and everything. Yeah. 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 That's been kind of the thing for us. Yeah. Yeah. I can only, I can't even think of any serial killer in the last twenty years other than you can think about that. That guy that was shooting people up in Washington, D.C. about 20 years ago. The D.C. sniper, yeah. Sniping people on the interstate. Yeah, and even then, yeah. they count that as a spree killer. They didn't even really count that guy as a... I mean, it, it, tomato, tomato in that situation, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, the technicalities of it, yeah. There's been a lot of people who have been caught in the last few years, like the Golden State Killer and Samuel Little, who committed their crimes decades ago and are just now getting caught. Right. But not a lot of, like, big time paranoia widespread kind of thing like like we said it's mostly just like the random killings and spree killings and shootings and that kind of stuff now less the like serialized angle the only two i can even think of off the top of my head and they had not gotten like the national attention like those other guys did the craigslist killer i think up in the brooklyn area or like around new york who was apparently like putting in craigslist ads out and killing sex workers that like responded to those craigslist ads yeah and then also to and this might might not even be one person or real but there's also like the smiley face murders theory that like there's been these series of killings where like a smiley face has been spray painted or painted on a wall nearby like where the murder happened um which if you want to go down a rabbit hole at one in the morning like i did about that i've never heard of that yeah yeah, that's creepy yeah just google the smiley face murders um and there's even like a whole wikipedia article on it but yeah any of our listeners out there because i know we have a lot of uh true crime podcasts and true crime fans that also listen to our show if y'all know more about those killers like hit me up i want to know if they got caught or like if there's <laughs> any more like attention given to them but yeah anyway continue so the last thing i have to mention and derek you'll be proud of me i played a video game was it finally fucking alien isolation like I t- i've been telling you to no god damn it. <laughs> with all the weather that we've had recently which again i know that's dating this podcast that we're banking but uh with the like fucking winter storm yuri bullshit that's locked down basically the entire middle chunk of the country we've been stuck inside the last few days with no way to get out so i went ahead and said fuck it because i knew it was short and i played 
Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. Oh, hell yeah. How'd you like it? It was good overall. So, I am not nearly as into video games as you are. Yeah. I am definitely way more like, tell me a story, let me play basically a movie, or the complete open world RPG, let me just like go run around and do whatever the fuck I want on a map. I'm not about the Souls games where it's just get good scrub, I don't play sports games, I don't play like first person shooter stuff necessarily, so like, you know, for me, I want to play something that feels like a movie, and this certainly does. You don't necessarily have a HUD. It's it's very, very cinematic. It's all first person. I mean, the first two hours are just Texas Chainsaw Massacre homage. That's what I was about to say, yeah. It's very, very Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You are playing a character who's going to this, like, rural Louisiana swamp-ass home with this crazy family because that's where your wife, who disappeared three years ago, like, has reappeared, supposedly. And so it's just you wandering through this house being hunted by these crazy family members who are all infected with crazy black mold monster bullshit. So this is the first Resident Evil I've played. This was definitely like baby's first Resident Evil game. It was not nearly as corny as I thought it was gonna be. Yeah, it is a sequel to Resident Evil 6 and the rest of the series, but it is kind of like a soft reboot because yeah. Resident Evil 4 is one of my top video games of all time, but it really did. But I remember y'all playing that in college and it's yeah. like super fucking over the top and ridiculous. It laid the groundwork for corniness, yeah. It's like the movies and that's yeah. that's what I was gonna mention too because Damien messaged me earlier in the week and said I'm chugging through all these Resident Evil movies yeah. and they're awful. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, is that what this game is going to be? Oh, fuck. So Resident Evil 5 and 6 are like that corny. Yeah. But like 7 was like, we're getting back to basics. We're going back to our roots. We're going to do an earnest attempt at like being true survival horror again. Yeah. This game does steer more into the main storyline of the series as it progresses toward the end. Yeah. And all the threads start coming together and you kind of figure out what's happening. But before then, it literally is just you stuck in a house of horrors with like different trashy members of this family, like hunting you through crawl spaces. Yeah, and you have a, knife. a fucking brick and a pocket knife. And yeah. you know, that's kind of it. Yeah, like <laughs> you start off with no weapons for the first 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, I was surprised how much of it was just you can't confront the villains. Like a lot of it is just avoiding them and running around trying to like not get caught and killed so it's not as like ball to the wall like you can just get a knife and go stab 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 your way through everything like there's only like five other people there with you in this house but you can't you have to avoid them the boss fights though certainly go in that direction i will say resident evil 7 still got like the over the top boss fights pretty down a little bit yeah yeah when you're fucking dueling chainsaws with the dad and like the meat locker like that's <laughs> that's what i was about yeah, to say yeah like... it's, it's very motel hell at that point where you're literally like fucking locking chainsaws with this dude in a basement so things i didn't quite dig the character models are very off-putting there's something about the cgi way that their faces are kind of rubbery and gummy and the lip syncing doesn't work well and the teeth floating in the head are weird <laughs> and nobody has chins there's just something about the character models that is off-putting it's just a very uncanny valley thing that it bothers is very me uncanny. 
uncanny valley and they're not stylized at all they're trying to go very like realistic with the look of these characters but it's just very off-putting the ending was very jurassic park that last boss fight's kind of ridiculous yeah well not just that but like the way it ends with oh here's a sunset look at this piano music we're playing da 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 the evils coming <laughs> back like oh god funny thing is every resident evil game pretty much ends that way even the more serious ones they still have that like okay riding in a helicopter into the sunset like you said fucking Jessica sad Park. piano music playing yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah every single one of them basically ends that way I, I played code veronica that's the only one i've ever played on the dreamcast nice oh wow okay yeah i actually have code veronica on ps2 because i'm a video game collector as well and i still have all the old games that i bought through my childhood most of them at least and aaron can attest way before we started this podcast like even though i stayed away from horror movies horror video games have always been my bag so i played through pretty much every single resident evil game that's out there (laughs) yeah as much as you are like oh man i'm terrified we're gonna talk about the ring because i don't like scary ghost girls you fucking love those fatal frame games and that's all that they are yeah because i there i have control (laughs) well um yeah the only other thing i'd say is i mostly guessed what the plot twist was for this game right away if you've consumed enough horror like it's not hard yeah i guessed what the twist was right away and once that ended up being kind of the thing by the end i was like okay like that could have been maybe set up a little bit better but what i did like it is interesting to me i mean this is a capcom game it's made by a japanese developer obviously like all the like southern louisiana ism of it is like way overblown like everybody's accents are like this and like (laughs) oh yeah my dad is coming after you bar (laughs) like it's that kind of ridiculous over the top shit so zoe zoe baker's voice actress is all over the fucking place in that game to the point where she almost sounds australian in some parts of the game yeah like it's like that's (laughs) that's not cajun (laughs) yeah not at all but what i did appreciate is a lot of the like vibe and atmosphere of the game really embodies a lot of that post katrina destruction yeah the amount of just tore up covered in black mold bullshit rotted wood destruction is very reminiscent of katrina it's very reminiscent of everything that you and I like remember from growing up and like the cleanup stuff that I participated in. Just all of that was very, very like spot on to a slightly heightened degree. Yeah, not to be like too pedantic about it, but it pretty much is you going into like a post Katrina house, but not a post Katrina house in New Orleans. I mean, like a post Katrina house out in the fucking bayou. In the swamp, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is a lot of post oil spill vibes as well. Oh. Oh, yeah, buddy. All the black mold fungus stuff that is, like, controlling and possessing these family members. Like, there's also, like, these fucking, like, mold monsters that you have to shoot. And there's just this creeping, oozing, slick, very kind of venom from Spider-Man black mold shit. Yeah, it looks, like, oily. Which reminds yeah. me a lot of oil spill yeah. stuff that we've seen in the last couple of years, too. Capcom, like, for being a Japanese developer in this game is a Japanese horror game. They really, I guess, did their homework because, like, there is something to say there with what they do in Resident Evil 7. I'm sure that's the same way with all the Resident Evils, but, like, especially in 7. To a degree, like, some of the stuff was corny and just game mechanic stuff that drove me up the wall. Again, like, I'm not as big into video games as you are, so, like... (laughs) Booby Trap Barn? No, I mean, just the fact that, like, you know, you're running through this house and you're trying to avoid people, but you can't fucking shut a door behind you. What the fuck kind 
kind of mechanic is that? Why can't I turn around and press X and shut the door? <laughs> you know, like, why is that? Good. I just have to keep running, you know, <laughs> yeah, like dumb shit like that. You know, stab the steroids into your arm and now your health is permanently increased. Okay, dumb, whatever. <laughs> um, your hand gets chopped off with a chainsaw in the first five minutes of the game. And then they just like staple, staple it back <laughs> to your stump and it's totally fine the rest of the game. No big deal. Whatever. That's, yeah, video game. Video exactly. Game yeah, that's the kind of hilarious shit that I was cracking up the entire game but overall like it was fun i will say this i had heard so much hype about this game being so scary oh my god play it with headphones on to get all the atmosphere and play it in the dark and it's gonna be so fucking scary bro I didn't flinch, like, not a single time. None of the jump scares worked on me. Like, none of the atmosphere was scary. The game was fun, but, like, none of that got to me. And I will say, I was more anxious and stressed out playing the new fucking Mario game with my wife, (laughs) which is frustrating as shit, than I was playing this Resident Evil game. So I didn't find it that intense. Yeah, I'm sure sure that game is super scary for the average person, but you're the person that watches Shudder from sun up to sun down so yeah exactly 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 well and and to that point when it compared to the rest of the resident evil series it's pretty scary okay granted not compared to all horror video games i mean arguably you could even say bioshock's scarier in this game but this game felt about on par with bioshock where like there's a creep and there's a dread and there's kind of an abject grossness to it but it never really felt scary. Yeah. It never really felt dangerous. It never felt like I'm doing something that's like super sketchy and I should feel skeeved out about like playing this game. Like I didn't feel any of that. The only two times that like it made me jump because I, I, I'm like you, it was m- below average to average horror at best for me. Certainly I feel like Alien Isolation, a game I brought up earlier and I give you crap about not playing, does a way better job of creeping dread and actual horror. But Resident Evil 7, the two times it really got me was when the fucking mom just pops from around the corner and screams in your face and then starts shooting fucking bugs at you and then when the other i don't want to say this one because i don't want to give away the twist but like there's a point where like a little girl gets right in your face uh, one one or two points of the game it's jump scares yeah i know exactly what you're talking about yeah, yeah. it's very jump scary but other than that yeah like i really dug the atmosphere a, a shit ton and it does feel very texas chainsaw massacre i think it's a good horror starter for a lot of people yeah it's scary enough but it's not super scary for anyone who has experience with the genre yeah i think the mechanics of the game and just the nature of the fact that it's designed to be kind of puzzly is what really kept me at arm's length from embracing the horror because for as much as it tries to be creepy the game is also still oh well in order to get to this part of the house you have to get a key that's shaped like this and you have to find it in this place but first you have to talk to this person and you have to do a thing for them that's a resident evil silent hill thing to a t yeah Yeah. all that kind of detaches me from the immediacy of the story that it's trying to tell because then i just start thinking so wait this family has to fucking live in this house but like the keys to all the goddamn doors are hidden all over the entire house. Like, how do they live? How do you get out the front door of the house Yeah. if there's, like, a three-part key that you have to assemble and find all the parts for? You've never played a King's Quest game. My God, that's all you had to do was yeah. run around and find some <laughs> yeah. of those simple things. Yeah. And I'm sure, like, that's how so many video games do function. Yeah, Resident Evil 2, like, the fucking had to get to the parking garage of this police station. You have to find three crests that are hidden on three statues throughout the police station. It's like, yeah. why the fuck would they design it? <laughs> 
this way. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Like, this family, like, lives their day-to-day life, you know, in this house. But, like, it's such a pain in the ass to get around for me. And I don't even live here. <laughs> um, what did crack me up, though, was one scene where I went into this nasty, moldy bathroom. And they had one of those chain mesh, three-tier hanging fruit holders. Yep. You know what I mean? That, like, hang from the ceiling. And they just had that in the bathroom. And I was like, the fuck? <laughs> Is that in the bathroom for? And then I, know, I was like, I know exactly what room you're talking about because I thought yeah. the same fucking thing when I walked in there. And my only thought was like, I guess that's where they keep their shower oranges. <laughs> Are they into that fucking internet meme of shower oranges? You know, just okay, sure. All right, Capcom, I'm with you. Let's let's go. Let me get my <laughs> antique coins and my fucking bobbleheads and stab this uh, stabilizer into my arm, and I guess I'm good to go shoot some monsters. So <laughs> either way, I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was I'm all. Glad of- you 12 it. hours of gameplay it was really not long at all and i'm pretty meticulous when i go through games so you could probably beat it in much less time now go play alien isolation because it is the best alien sequel since aliens okay <laughs> like, i will try to get started on that one next certainly it is way better than alien 3 and alien resurrection okay i will promise you the next game that i play is going to be that one i'm, I'm looking for like shorter stuff to play so we'll see dude you will love it it is so good especially with if you like the franchise of alien especially like the first and second movies yeah you will really enjoy it all right cool cool let's go ahead and move into discussing this week's movie uh we are going to be covering once again Wes craven's 1984 slasher masterpiece cultural juggernaut again like welcome to primetime bitch here we go <laughs> so yeah a nightmare on elm street The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? We just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the jaw and puking since he saw it. You're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy? There's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails... I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. No one will survive. Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror, Nightmare on Elm Street. Alright, so before we kind of get into the movie a little bit more, let's talk about Wes Craven as a dude real quick. Yeah, because this is our first time. Like you said, first time with Wes Craven, yeah. so we gotta go into a little background. You mentioned Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left. Yeah, I've mentioned watching a lot of his stuff in the background during my recommendations and what I've been doing lately, but this is the first one that we've covered for some reason. We have most of his films on our list of stuff to cover. Um, we knew specifically we wanted to do this one with you, Damien. 
opinion, and we were kind of looking for like the right time to do it, scheduling and just everything else, but I'm kind of surprised we haven't gotten to something else beforehand because I really have always dug a lot of his movies, and I think one thing that kind of sets him apart that's interesting, with his background, he grew up super Methodist, Calvinist, something religious like that, and he literally never saw a movie until he was like in college. Wow. Whoa. Um, so he had no prior exposure to film. He had never seen a horror movie. He had no exposure to the actual cinematic language of how movies are put together and made. So what I think sets him apart from a lot of his contemporaries like Carpenter and Hooper and Romero is he brings a lot of really unique conceptual topics to his films and he brings in a lot of outside stuff that has always been knocking around in his head or experiences he's had or things that he's read and that influences his writing and he has a lot of social commentary in his movies as well but he doesn't necessarily have the technical prowess and filmmaking like rule book in his head I guess like a lot of his contemporaries so there are times where he does really unique and out of the box things that have never been done before that really stand on their own. I mean, he started doing exploitation stuff and porn. That's kind of how he got into the industry. I didn't realize he did porn. Um, that explains a lot, actually, especially with his early work. Yeah, and, and so he does Last House on the Left which is the definition of exploitation. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a, it's a rape revenge, right? Yeah. That movie is dark, it's yeah. fucked up, it's mean-spirited, and that's kind of the thing. I think a lot of it is he was taking stuff straight ripped from the news that he was reading and just things that he was absorbing through life and spitting it back out into film, but in a very like raw, unfiltered, not really sure like where the line is. So he's constantly crossing the line. Yeah, this is what I've always thought, because like I, I feel like a lot of people, especially critics, uh, I mean, I think Roger Ebert especially really fucking hated Craven's early work, but Well, he hated horror in general, but yeah, like yeah. Yeah, all the early stuff he he really hated. I think Craven, because we've talked about these guys constantly, I think it was almost like an immaturity in filmmaking, like you were saying, where like I don't think he was trying to be mean spirited for the sake of shock value or just mean spiritedness. I think he literally was just like, okay, this is what I'm seeing in the news. Here it is, yeah. So here it is. Yeah. Without any like nuance to it at all. Not that it's the problematic stuff in his early movies, especially not that it's forgivable, but that I don't think he realized what he was doing with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly kind of what I'm saying. His movies feel dangerous in kind of the same way that the original Texas Chainsaw also kind of feels dangerous. We're like, am I supposed to be watching this? What is this? You know, this feels very snuffy and gross and wrong and that's kind of the background that Wes Craven comes from and that becomes more and more refined as he goes on and he did a lot of TV movies and stuff like that before this movie even The Hills Have Eyes still feels like exploitative even though that's is, more yeah, of totally. a horror movie than yeah. Last House on the Left is yeah and I think I, I didn't really care for Last House on the Left not for any reason other than I almost feel like I knew those guys sure. back in the 70s because I was bullied pretty heavily as a kid and though those guys are going to be an exaggeration of the people i remember i remember 
bullies being like that. Like, I don't understand how somebody yeah. could just not give a fuck about a person or just torture a person at any level just for the sake of their own enjoyment. Yeah. And that's why I think that movie just kind of, ugh, I don't like this because I, I feel like I knew these guys back in the 70s or I knew their brothers. Like, those guys were probably the older brothers of the kids that I went to school with. Yeah. But over time, as he, like, learns better, like, what he's doing and his technical prowess kind of improves, you know, his filmmaking becomes more refined, his stories become more refined. But there's always that element of danger to his movies that somebody like Carpenter, for instance, as much as I fucking love John Carpenter, his movies always seem kind of safe. You know, it's more about reveling in the technical filmmaking prowess of somebody like John Carpenter, who is such a, like, journeyman perfectionist, just like, it's fucking solid filmmaking craft with a good story wrapped up behind it. Where with Craven, you see the imperfections. You see the seams in his movie making. You see the seams in the special effects. You know, they pull a fucking blow-up doll through a door window in this movie, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see the seams in the filmmaking, but the nugget of the story, like at the core of it, is just so fucking good. And that holds true through so many of his movies. And because he brings so much social commentary to the movie, that makes it that much more impactful. Because on one level, for instance, this movie is all about, you know, the surreality and metaphysical nature of dreams and all this bullshit, but it's also very much about boomer shit. It's about the sins of the parents parents of all these kids yeah. and their secrets and their lies and their shared guilt and how that entire hippie love generation you know by the 80s during the Reagan era they kind of moved on to like dropping all of their promise and all the things that they hoped for because they had a comfortable suburban existence at that point you know so like they're gonna do everything they can to keep it that way and they do bad things that just roll back on their kids that level of social commentary is there in all of his movies so that's something that like i think is always interesting because even a surface level movie or what seems like a surface level movie like this of just ah killer guys coming after kids in their dreams there's still that undercurrent to it that you can peel back a little bit more and get way more out of the movie if you just don't take it at surface level you know and that's part of the reason why this franchise has such long legs even to this day so that said Damien let's kind of start there you kind of mentioned earlier like when you first saw this movie but again you're a super fan so like tell us kind of about what this franchise as a whole like really kind of was at the time and how big of a pop culture thing it became and how invested you were into it <laughs> This could be a long section of this podcast. So initially, the appeal, like I said earlier, was that he wasn't a masked killing machine who didn't talk and he didn't seem to have any purpose. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And that's by design because Wes Craven specifically wanted to, like, differentiate Freddy from the previous characters. And yeah. he wanted to, like, make that character stand out. Yeah. And there was a, almost a comedic sense to him that... 
I don't want to say made him less scary, but the fact that he was able or wanted to cut off his own parts yeah. to just see the fear in the other person's eyes. And he basically does that on like two or three separate occasions because he does it with his fingers. He does it with his own face at one point, and then he does it on like his own body. Yeah. He, he slashes his own torso. His face actually gets ripped off twice. Yeah. Tina rips it off once when she's struggling with him in the bed. And then he reaches through the window when Nancy he's running up the stairs and his face kind of gets ripped off again yeah and and that's kind of where like the movie poster which uh looks so ridiculous i love it that poster's so fucking good man his face looks like that when his actual like burned skin is ripped off it's that's not actually how his face looks but yeah i love that poster so much even though it's so absurd (laughs) yeah craven did such a good job in making the dream world so real yeah the lambs that keep appearing in in the nightmares, the sound effects and him talking in the background and taunting you. All of that was so real to me. That's what made it so much more frightening because, you know, you can go to bed at night. That's what a nightmare is like. It's nonsensical. Yeah. It has no meaning to it. You know, you could be walking down a corridor and a fucking lamb runs in front of you for no reason. Yeah. And that corridor goes from being like the inside of an empty school to just a straight up boiler room that seems to never end yeah yeah (laughs) a factory that only makes sparks and chain noises (laughs) yeah yeah So, you know, like I said, I I watched the first one on HBO and I fell in love with it because I liked that it was a break from the movies that we had been seeing uh, as far as, you know, the horror movies go. Just within days of seeing that movie, they announced Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which would be the first one that I went to the theaters to see. And, you know, it was not the movie, the sequel that we all had hoped. And sadly, back in the 80s, sequels weren't as good as sequels are now. And you, you kind of almost expected sequels to not be so good. And this one, you know, Craven stepped away from the the movie itself, and then they broke a lot of rules with Freddy by putting him out in the daylight or out in the real world with the pool scene at the end. But it was still fun in the sense that now he was going to possess another person and and use him to kill. So back then, there wasn't a lot of chatter about movies like we do over the internet now or, you know, podcasts and stuff. So when you went and saw it, you were entertained by the movie. Yeah. You didn't go home and get online and talk about it. You had your friends that you talked about with and what part of it was scary to you you know how were the kills cool and that's a great point because i mean i know it influences me i don't know about you aaron but i'll admit there totally is kind of the schadenfreude of i went to go see this movie i'm not sure how i feel about this let me check in with what my friends think and let me check in with what rotten tomato says and like i'll have to be careful like sometimes that might sway my opinion one way or the other when in actuality i personally either didn't like it or didn't hate it yeah and and so I, I, i didn't fall out of love with the franchise i still enjoy the movie now elm street 3 dream warriors comes around yeah that's the big fan favorite one this is the movie that launched it into stratosphere and the reason why it did is mtv jumped on board yeah i didn't know that i didn't know that they were on board with this one okay yeah well this is the one that suddenly became a marketing juggernaut yeah commercials the music video the fucking docking video video, the toys just the amount of stuff yeah the merchandising for that third movie that was just everywhere yeah Yeah. well and wasn't Wes Craven at least involved in the screenplay for this one as well I think he produced it didn't he both yeah yeah so this one came back to feeling like the first movie although now we had more special effects 
soundtrack by Dawkins. We have a little bit bigger named actors in it, and they bring back Heather Langenkamp. Yeah, Larry Fishburne. Larry Fishburne, yep. And so once once it started to show up on MTV, that's when the pop culture of this movie just fucking took off. Yeah. MTV started having a Nightmare on Elm Street specials. DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince put out a rap about him. The Fat Boys did a song. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually, you can't yeah. show this, but I'm gonna. you can't show this on the podcast, but I'm going to show you my Freddy record. Oh, hell yeah. That's fantastic. I definitely have that Fat Boys single on vinyl. So that's that's when this movie hit Stratosphere. It's kind of It was kind of hard to explain because like your Entertainment Tonight was always talking about the, uh, the franchise. MTV was always rolling something. The videos were always playing. So it just kind of became this fun thing. And then the movies after number three took a very shift in tone as well. Yeah. Uh, they realized that Freddy was the star. It didn't matter that he was this despicable child killer. He kind of became a joke unto himself with the next set of movies. He almost became like the Joker. People are just so fascinated by the Joker as a character and are entertained by him. But at the end of the day, he's a mass murdering psycho clown like yeah. who kills innocent people yeah. for no reason. So kind of going off that, because I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street back when I was a teenager. I think I saw it first time start to finish when I was like 16, 17 years old. Loved it then. And this was my first time watching in well over a decade, maybe. I think this is my third or fourth time watching it and a i forgot how much more of a presence freddy is in this movie i don't know if i've seen start to finish any of the sequels but i've seen a lot of parts of the sequels just all over the place yeah and freddy is always like a fucking clown in it yeah he, he's always doing these elaborate kills which in their own right are fun and entertaining but like but it's a formula like whatever that teen's gimmick is that's how you know they're gonna get killed somehow or another yeah right and i'm more laughing at freddy rather than being scared by freddy but the first movie like it's the perfect balance because at the same time I also forget how much of a performer he is even in this one yeah all those bits of like cutting off his own fingers to freak out the teens and like having his face rip off and making noises and like cutting his own skin that's all just like look at me aren't I like a trickster but at the same time he doesn't speak much in this in this movie like it's always through like whispers and like haha I'm gonna get you kind of things yeah Yeah, the one-liners are definitely not what they are in the later movies yeah he's not cracking one-liners like it's prime time bitch and like the map says we're fucked and all that stuff (laughs) he is talking but he still feels like a force of nature in this movie and the scary part is is like when he actually physically shows he's not any bigger than a lot of these people he's killing yeah but like because you're in his world he has the control and like that's the whole idea that gets turned on its head by the end but like he's more of a entity than he is in any of the other sequels and i think this movie captured that balance perfectly of showmanship as well as being that all-consuming dread of like when you go to sleep you are fucked and he's gonna have a good time at your despair and that the sequels never quite ever were able to like balance well again yeah to that point both of yours and damien's west craven really wanted to differentiate freddy from the other killers that had been around at this point you know they were all kind of masked you know we had leatherface we had michael myers we had jason they all used 
used bladed, you know, knives, machetes, whatever. I, he said, like, they all use knives, and I wanted to do something different. Well, you just made a glove full of knives. I mean, it's kind of the same thing. I would also argue that Michael Myers and Jason will kill with whatever is fucking nearby in arm's reach, right? Yeah. As much as the machete and, you know, the kitchen knife are an iconic thing to their characters, they'll kill you with whatever. But the point is still, like, he wanted Freddy to stand out. He initially cast David Warner, and he had to drop out for scheduling reasons. Like, you can even see the makeup test for the David Warner look online. They initially were looking at older actors, and then they started looking at bigger hulking guys. Even Kane Hodder, who would go on to play Jason in the later Friday movies, he apparently auditioned to play Freddy Krueger. Yeah, well, they said that they usually use stuntmen for these sort of characters. Exactly, which is what they did with Michael Myers, yeah. Yeah, but they wanted an actor because they wanted yes. him to be able to perform. The fucking wild thing is that it's not a deep cut fact. It's pretty well known among the horror community, but it, it makes me laugh every time is that Robert England, he is a classically trained like Shakespearean actor, totally, which yeah. is like just always like trips me up because now he's a horror icon. Well, also weird deep cut connection. The casting what ifs are pretty notorious for a lot of movies, but specifically the story goes Robert England blew an audition for a big movie that was being cast and he goes back to his apartment and is like oh man that audition was terrible hey roommate Mark Hamill you should go audition for this Luke Starkiller character in this movie called Star Wars (laughs) and then for this movie kind of the same thing he was roommates with Jackie Earl Haley really Jackie Earl Haley was going to audition for this movie and was like hey bro can you give me a ride up there and so he was like yeah fuck it I'll audition too and then you know there it goes from there and of course Jackie Earl Haley plays Freddy in the, in the remake. remake so yeah like wild connections there Jackie Earl Haley we didn't we only knew him back then from the Bad News Bears movies exactly yeah like weird like where everybody kind of came from you know this was one of Heather Lankenkamp's first movies again she auditioned for Night of the Comet that we've talked about she auditioned for Last Starfighter the Glenn character supposedly Charlie Sheen yeah Charlie Sheen audition Nicolas Cage Brad Pitt like so many big people you know later auditioned for this role and Johnny Depp got it because Wes Craven's daughter saw the headshot and was like he's cute cast him so like there are a lot of weird what ifs but this is the kind of stuff where we talk about like filmmaking craft Wes Craven doesn't necessarily have the same level of technical training but he has an innate sense of this makes sense to me this is how I'm going to do this when they were casting these roles they auditioned actresses for Tina and for Nancy at the same time like it was just kind of a duel like you're auditioning for both roles potentially and then they kind of whittled it down to the people they liked and tried them in different pairs to see who had chemistry in the right ways that they wanted and then they did the same thing with the guy actors as well where they whittled down that list and then tried to see like what combinations of people work together well that's a very interesting way of casting that not a lot of people do yeah was this Johnny Depp's first movie or first breakout role? Like It's his first movie. The credits have him listed yeah. as introducing Johnny Depp. Yeah, this was his first movie movie. And he, he kind of shits on the movie too now. He doesn't really even talk about it. Uh, he didn't take part in the Never Sleep Again documentary. None of the behind the scenes stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Jokes on him. He has his own set of problems now. So yeah. this movie yeah. can stand alone without him for all I care. But, uh. but yeah, like a lot of where the Freddy character comes from it is an interesting confluence of things
things. It's yeah. partly he wanted to design a character that stood out from the existing characters. There was like a bully of Wes Craven's whose name was Fred Krueger. Yep. And Craven had already kind of riffed on that person's name for one of the villains in Last House on the Left that we just mentioned. Yeah, it was Krug, right? Krug. Yeah. There was supposedly a drunk wandering through an alley behind his childhood home who, like, directly looked around and made eye contact with him and was wearing, like, a dirty hat and was kind of crazed looking and that, like, weirdly burned into his childhood brain. But then, like, there's this whole undercurrent, too, of him pulling the concept of this from the headlines that he was reading of Hmong refugees who were fleeing Pol Pot and leaving Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos in the 70s and were then dying unexplained deaths in these refugee camps um, where they would wake up in the middle of the night freaking out from a nightmare and refusing to go to sleep for a few days and then finally like dying in their sleep with no apparent cause, you know, a few days later. And there were, you know, one instance of that, okay, two instances, huh, that's weird. By the third instance of that, then it kind of becomes a weird... We need to see what's going on here. And it started becoming newsworthy. And that whole idea, like, really just stuck in his head in the early 70s. Well, didn't it go unexplained as well? Like, they never really solved what... I think it's still, like, I think they even just called it Southeast Asian Unknown Death Syndrome or some shit like that. Like, they didn't really figure out, like, what was going on. But, like, so many of these little things all come together to, like, create this character and this story and this mythos because... He's like squirreling away all these little bits and pieces of things that he's taking in to kind of form this whole story. It's a lot of all the right pieces coming together because the beauty of the original Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger, especially in this movie, it's like putting together Darth Vader as Lucas and everyone around the Star Wars films. It's the right actor, the right performer. But on top of that, the influences are there because like you could argue that this is both a highly creative and original original and also like unoriginal but doing all the right things movie because like people have gone on and said this movie The Sender which is like a relatively unknown British horror movie I think from like 1982 had influence on Elm Street because it had to deal with surreal dreamlike imagery specifically like in mental institutes which shows up later in Dream Warriors but also on top of that you have the fucking myth of the boogeyman which God knows how long that that has been with human history or the idea of the devil visiting you in your sleep with night terrors like and sleep paralysis and waking up feeling like you're dying from a night terror like these aren't original ideas these have been with us since recorded human history but it's the way he puts them all together to personify it yeah exactly the way he put it together to personify freddy krueger and just this simple idea of a supernatural vengeful ghost but instead of this vengeful ghost haunting you during the day all day every day it comes at you in your dreams when you're most vulnerable when you're asleep and it's the ghost of a serial killer killing your children in their sleep as like revenge as a way to feed off the fear etc like now we look back on that and it's like oh that's not very original but at that time the way it was put together like you said Aaron like the personification of Freddy Krueger of all those ideas is incredible especially in this movie yeah yeah well it still works now because we watched it the other night and I mean I've seen this movie a ton of times you always had that feeling in the back of your head of like when I fall asleep I'm fucked like, no, no no what I was about to say was we watched it and Heather had never seen it yeah Heather had never seen any of these movies 
movies and we watched the first one the other night and even she was just like okay yeah i get why this movie was such a big fucking deal when it came out and like i get its legacy and i get clearly all the stuff it's influenced since like i see all of it in this movie that we just watched and it was still very effective and she liked it a lot i had friends of mine in middle school and and high school and this is you know early 2000s mid 2000s still decades after this movie was released saying like yeah i couldn't sleep for a week or two after watching this because i didn't want freddie to get me yeah this movie fucked my mom up my mom same thing she was like i don't like putting my like hands or my feet over my bed because this movie like freaked me the fuck out with johnny depp getting sucked into the bed (laughs) and stuff like that see and everyone talks about the johnny depp scene the one that gets me because i sometimes soak in the tub like hey hey listeners yeah i I soak in the tub Um, but (laughs) nice glass of wine some candles yeah Yeah. just like sometimes i'll like have a hot bath and just soak for a while and just that idea of fucking freddie's hand coming up out of the water to like grab me like you know even that is like pretty striking imagery another thing about craven that's interesting is and a lot of filmmakers kind of do this to varying degrees but he does kind of tend to reuse some elements from his prior work if he didn't quite get what he wanted out of it or maybe he'll try it again and remix it slightly but one of his previous movies deadly blessing which was like a direct-to-video amish i guess not amish they're like mennonites or whatever horror movie there's a scene in that where the main character is soaking in her tub and a snake gets in the tub with her and the framing the way everything's put together they're like the same level of the snake coming up out of the water between her legs and her not seeing it all of that stuff completely he pulled that from that movie and like reworked it into this one for kind of the same effect so he's you know not proud enough to like still not just go back to like his previous influences and just try things again or rework things which I appreciate a lot he seems like a very grounded filmmaker in that kind of way where he recognizes his mistakes he learns from his mistakes he does them better later and he kind of continues to hone and perfect his craft you know one thing too to wrap back around you mentioned some of the development of this sounds like Star Wars how a lot of the right elements come together as far as like the rest of the behind the scenes stuff goes a lot of the other stuff with this movie sounds a lot like Star Wars where I think a lot of what makes this movie special is some of the creative limitations that were put on the movie due to the time frame and the budget and like the lack of resources and just them having to like figure out how to do stuff without limitless resources and money and everything else like they only had a budget of 1.8 million dollars I believe yeah wow. and from the get go they struggled to get this movie made he wrote this script when he was doing Swamp Thing and shopped it around for like three fucking yeah, years 81. and everybody passed on it wildly enough the first studio to show interest was fucking Disney <laughs> But they wanted him to like tone it down so that it would be family friendly. And there's no fucking way because the nugget of the movie is a fucking serial child murderer comes to you in your <laughs> dreams and kills you. There's no way to tone that down. The only way to tone that down is to rewrite the entire story, right? Yeah. In my in my head canon now, because I did grow up also like watching Disney Channel original movies where they like every summer, like in the mid 90s, they'd always put out like a new Disney Channel original TV movie and I watched them all. There was one 
one where it was pretty much Friday the 13th, but for kindergartners. <laughs> I think it was literally called The Boogeyman or something. Yeah, it's like Mr. Boogums or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and like I want to say that this is probably Dizzy's like, we finally did it. We finally found our G version of Nightmare on Elm Street. We're going to put it out as a Disney Channel original movie. And it had this girl's imaginary friend help her fight the boogeyman. It was ridiculous. But Damon, you had mentioned the budget of $1.8 million. I just pulled it up and you're right on. And it was $1.8 million. Yeah. And the yeah. box office made $57 million. So uh, yeah. it smashed. And the crazy thing is the sequels made more money yep. by a long shot. Yeah. The second movie on its opening weekend made what this movie made in its entire run because That's it crazy. was just that much of like a big anticipated hit at that point. But from the get-go, once New Line took it, New Line like was a new studio at the time. They had mostly been a distro, but they had finally started and gotten into like actually producing movies of their own. I mean, they did like Alone in the Dark, which also had John Saxon in it, and John Waters' Polyester, which... It's fucking hilarious to me that there is a Criterion Blu-ray of Polyester now. But they were kind of just getting into this game, and they agreed to take it. But it became like this whole bullshit thing of Bob Shea having all these deals with a million different people and all their money. And half the people dropped out over time and had to, like, get wrangled back in or find new people. They went for, like, two or three weeks not paying any of the fucking crew because they just, like, didn't have money. You know, dumb shit like that where he finally just got everything together and they pulled it off by the skin of their teeth but it instantly paid off and like the money came in immediately yeah but Wes Craven sold the rights to it away to Bob Shea yeah, yeah. so he had no rights to it and he kind of hates that from everything that I've heard but on the other hand he's you know made peace with it but that was part of the deal was in order for this to get finished here's what the qualifications of this are gonna be and I'll, I'll say too like maybe I'm mischaracterizing him but Bob Shea seems like he's a fucking pain in the ass to work with because yeah. for every behind the scenes thing I've ever seen where people are talking about him or he's involved from this movie all the way through like Lord of the Rings. Everybody is like, Bob Shea's a pain in the ass. Bob Shea wants to step in and tell us how to do our jobs. Bob Shea likes to like jump in and say, hey, I got this wild crazy idea. Let's do this. And we're already behind on like three or four other things that he's like on our ass about. <laughs> By the way, give me the rights. And he, he meddled with this movie two more times in one scene in the middle of the movie and then the ending of movie he meddled in it yeah and the ending is kind of the main thing where he wanted it to lead into possible sequels so that was going to be one of my questions for y'all later on was this craven's idea like this feels like a movie that like craven wanted to be one and done almost maybe even but then that ending happens and i feel like that ending was more of a studio decision granted i like the ending i'm not gonna lie like i actually am kind of an apologist for the ending but it does feel very different from the rest of this movie yeah because it is yeah Yeah. it was tactical on they also filmed three different versions of an ending like one that was like a happy ending one where freddy's driving the car one where you know there's just like two or three different versions they kind of had to negotiate ronnie blakely getting ripped through the door is totally a last minute goofy thing but i love it at the same time i love that ending so (laughs) much (laughs) but it's one of those things where yeah craven circles back around with shocker with the notion of like let me see if i can like kind of make my own boogeyman character 
character again that I can actually retain the rights to and like maybe build a franchise off of because he kind of had regrets about Freddy. But I do appreciate that he at least came back around to this franchise over time because honestly, like I like this first one. Three is great. And then I really do like New Nightmare. I like the meta nature of New Nightmare. I can't wait for us to do New Nightmare on this show because like I really dig the idea of it. And that all bleeds directly into Scream just a few years later. So you can see that through line that he's clearly like toying with these ideas over time and evolving them. And New Nightmare, I think even better than all the sequels, blends the weird veil of like, am I awake? Am I dreaming? Like, what is reality right now in this moment? Besides this first movie, that one actually does it the best, in my opinion. So, I mean, this franchise as a whole, with it cranking out a movie, like, every year, right? There was, like, one movie every fucking year. Just about, yeah. All the way until, like, maybe five, and then I think there was, like, a little bit of a gap between five and six, but, like, maybe just an extra year. You know, the only horror series I can think of that's really been like that since then is the Saw movies, where you had a Saw movie come out every fucking Halloween for a few years. You know, so the fact that, like, it did that at that time, and there was a new Friday movie, there was a new Elm Street movie every fucking year, like, clockwork is just bananas, you know, and we clearly have unrelated stuff like the Marvel movies, like, that's the big tentpole cash cow kind of thing now, where they're cranking out multiple Marvel movies a year, but for something like horror, where horror has always been this, like, derided and kind of shit-upon subgenre, for them to have that much of a groundswell in fans that we're gonna put a fucking movie out every year is nuts and they were all successful like even the later sequels still all made money which is bananas you know overall as far as this movie's concerned so much of the fears and the anxieties the movie's really preying on that whole like idea of you being so vulnerable while you're sleeping is terrifying and just the limitless nature of your dreams and the weird connections that your brain makes like Damien you were saying like so many of the things that make no sense in real life but they do totally make sense when you're in a dream world that's so much of a sandbox thing that you can play with yeah there's so much that you can do to make an interesting story and you know as far as this movie's concerned the sexual angle of this movie i think is also very interesting because the movie doesn't elaborate on him being a child killer and frankly he was supposed to also be a child molester molester but because of like the mcmartin preschool bullshit and all the other like schools across north america that were being accused of systemic abuse oh the satanic panic satanic panic bullshit they really really toned down that aspect of it see i didn't know that i I always thought that craven instead was purposely trying to keep him just a child murderer not molester and a murderer well the sexual angle was definitely there from the beginning and it got kind of pulled out because they didn't necessarily want to be exploiting like the current situation that was in the tabloids and in the news at the moment. Damien, did you see like any of that, by the way? Growing up, did you hear any of that or was that in the, a big thing in the news through the 80s? About the Elm Street itself or the story that he's referring to? Just satanic panic in general. I have no memory of that, honestly. Wow. 
And that kind of surprises me, I guess, considering you grew up in California where so much of that was happening yeah. and your parents being religious. Like, I definitely remember constantly, or grandparents, yeah, I constantly remember, like, even at our, like, non-dom church growing up, just the amount of, like, oh, yeah, there's satanic murderers and pedophiles <laughs> everywhere that you go. Like, it's constantly everywhere. Like, watch out for your kids. In our fucking New Orleans-ass Catholic light Catholicism, we didn't talk about any of that yeah so to try to maybe explain that during this time in the early 80s to mid 80s is when videotape vhs movie rentals was new yeah so yeah i i didn't watch the nightly news i went home and i fucking threw in a videotape and watched a movie good for you <laughs> yeah I was either hanging out with friends and going to the movies to see E.T. in the theater, Indiana Jones, Return of the Jedi. Goddamn, that's incredible. Uh, or going home and throwing a, a cassette tape in and watching the movie. Yeah. So I was completely detached from local news. And again, no internet, didn't read the newspaper. So whatever was going on in the world, somebody had to come up and tell me to my face. Yeah, I, I was too much into movies because it was just such a big thing. Blockbuster was just starting. Yeah. Because of horror movies, I became interested in horror movie makeup. That fed me my love back into horror movies. So watching all of the Of the Dead movies and reading Dick Smith yeah. monster makeup books and, you know, trying to practice the craft, which sadly I never got into. But this is an aside, but like Aaron and I always have this conversation of like, what would it have been like to like go to Vampire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi, like opening night and looking back 20 years from now what will be our versions of those movies and it's hey maybe avengers endgame is going to be like our star wars 20 years from now yeah but it's it's hard to yeah. envision right now in the moment because there really is not much paradigm shifting type of movies out there right now like i mean shit even this one we're talking about today yeah everyone's talking about how it reinvented the horror wheel and then you know not even 10 years earlier you had halloween something i wanted to ask both of you that i noticed and i didn't look up anything about this but I thought it was interesting I saw that at least on the listed credits like on Wikipedia and IMDb both Heather Langenkamp and Robert England aren't the top build the top build are John Saxon John and Saxon. Ronnie Blakely yeah. was that yeah. done on purpose to like get more budget to get more eyes on this movie to get more legitimacy from like producers and all of that because I know Saxon and Blakely were like mega stars at that point who had been in the game for decades yeah Saxon he was always the the cop. Yeah. And everything I remember yeah. seeing him in, he yeah. was always the cop. Ronnie Blakely, I can't say I remember anything she was in before this movie, but Saxon, absolutely. Ronnie Blakely was in Nashville before, and she had been, like, nominated for an Academy Award for that movie, so, like, she was definitely a big-time actress at the time. Kind of on the downslope a little and bit. she was a singer also, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she was also a singer, but yeah, she was kind of, like, on the downslope of her acting career at that time. But yeah, John Saxon had been around for a long time yeah. you know he he had been around since like the 50s when he was kind of like the hot young dude in all the like studio movies and stuff like that so that's pretty common um especially with horror movies that you know if you have kind of a toward the end of their career big name known actor you would kind of bump them to the front of the credits yeah they did a good job in this movie but really i mean this really is the heather langenkamp and robert england and even arguably the johnny depp show yeah. But like something else I wanted to bring up was when I think of final
final girls, right? The two, like, most badass, just spitting definition of that trope to me are Ripley from Alien and Heather Langenkamp from Nightmare on Elm Street. Because yeah. and the thing I love about her character so much, Nancy, in this movie, is that Nancy, you know, she's a teenager. She reacts believably like how a teenager would react in this situation. She's scared. She's running from Freddy. She's crying for help in those vulnerable moments. And she does the stuff you are supposed to do. And this is yet another fear that is explored in this movie that pops up time and time again in our movie. Failure of authority, specifically from your own parents and even the cops, just authority figures failing the kids and the kids having, well, in this case, even her alone, having to figure out the problem and the solution to this problem. And she fucking does it, but she does it in a very believable way. It's not like a overnight solution. Like she puts the pieces together. She gets in danger multiple times and is almost killed, but she puts the pieces together. And instead of fucking cowering, she's like, nah, you know what? Fuck this. I'm not going down without a fight. I'm going to drag his ass out into the real world. The scene I love is when Johnny Depp is like, why are you reading a book about how to like set up fucking homemade bombs and traps around her house? And she's like, I don't know. It's, I just find it interesting. I'm a hobbyist. Yeah, no big deal. She's like, no, fuck that. I'm going to have a light bulb explode in Freddy's face to stun him so I can get the cops to come and arrest this asshole. Like, yeah, I I will say that there's a little bit in that part of the third act there where she's setting all that up. I think this is where uh, Wes Craven kind of loses it a little bit in that she tells her father, come bust down the door in 20 minutes and arrest the guy. Yeah. And then she spends three hours setting up traps. Yeah. (laughs) Right. She also has a conversation with her mother. Yeah. Yeah. They probably should have edited that differently, like have her do it prior and then somehow tell her dad. But then fall asleep and get into realm sleep, which she had been awake for seven days. So that probably wasn't that hard. But yeah, that whole 20 minute timeline to get all that done was is a little hard yeah. to watch even right now yeah yeah that angle is a little bit goofy but I, I agree with you Derek that the fact that she is a fighter the fact that she doesn't only survive by the end because of sheer dumb luck or because she is somehow the only pure virtuous girl who didn't compromise her morals like that whole tropey bullshit you know like it's very much just nah I chose to like not be a victim I'm gonna fight this asshole i'm mad about how my friends were all murdered so like i'm gonna take a stand well and you know again hubris beautiful hubris freddy kind of takes his fucking time and spends maybe a little too much time being a taunting asshole that kind of bites him in the ass but yeah like i I just think nancy is a perfect example of the final girl trope in a slasher movie and she doesn't do any of the make the stupid mistakes you know as wonderful as halloween is jamie lee curtis stabs michael with a knife and then drops the fucking knife next to his body and gets up and leaves the room yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and like i love jamie lee curtis in general and i like her in that movie a lot but again she's just not as capable as nancy like yeah that scene is fucking infuriating either keep stabbing the asshole or take the knife with you like what are you doing yeah that's a pet peeve of mine with horror movies and it's one of those things that does kind of drive me crazy like okay the killer is on the ground you think you've knocked out the killer no go make sure right. pick that knife up and stick it through the heart like eight more times yeah. or if you have a gun shoot his ass in the head like shoot double his ass. tap him yeah. come on yeah just so many of those instances were like well i hit him with a chair and he seems to be knocked out okay maybe break off one of the chair legs and stab it through his eye hole like make sure and that's what i like about nancy is in this movie like she stuns freddy a few times but when she gets him down the basement she hits him he gets stunned and then she lights his ass on fire while he's still stunned it's like that's how you do it keep the pressure 
pressure yeah. on. Like, keep beating his ass while he's down. He is not a powerful person. Without the glove and his magic powers, yeah. he is not an intimidating guy. Yeah. He's not a big dude. Yeah, yeah, again. And that goes back to Robert England and even his physical performance of Freddy. Like, he's kind of even just stumbling over the place, like, when he's chasing people and stuff. But he's so much more dangerous in the dream world because he's basically just Dr. Manhattan at that point. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah. But, like, in the real world, when he gets dragged out, yeah, it's like fucking Home Alone antics, like, with him getting the sledgehammer to the gut and everything else. <laughs> but that's what makes the character even more iconic because even in those vulnerable moments where he's kind of just a stumbling around asshole who's chasing her in the real world, he has more personality than Michael Myers, than Jason Voorhees. Yeah. Like, you were saying, Damien, of, like, these faceless killing machine slashers that we had had for, like, a decade at that point. So going back to uh, Wes Craven and his movie making and his eye on the details, I'm sure, Aaron, you picked up on this, but, you know, anytime Freddy was about to be a threat, the color palette of the scenes shifted and became very red and green. Yeah. Tina's house had dark red trim. The green of the grass and the green of the plants seemed to be almost brighter. Yeah. Well, on Nancy's house, too, the green of the grass and the trees and the red door, which that the red door is really just in the sequel. Yeah, the first, first one's blue. blue door, but then you do have the trellis with the like red, the red roses, roses around it. So there's little bits and pieces of that stuff kind of scattered throughout right. for sure. Now when Tina and Rod, after they have their good time, they're talking to each other and they say, you know, no more fights and no more nightmares. Rod rolls over and pulls the blanket up. The blanket has got yeah. red and green stripes on it. Yeah. So there is a hint there that Freddy is now coming or is yeah. part of what's about to happen. What's really cool about that is it's not insulting. If you're a casual viewer and you're not picking up on that cue, that's fine. Right. But like Craven still has that in there for people who are like maybe either playing closer attention or this is like their second, third viewing, etc. Because I picked up on that this viewing, but I don't think I picked up on that like the first time I watched this movie. So like it's kind of rewarding the particular viewers, but at the same time it's not detrimental if you're missing it out on it if you're more like first time watcher casual viewer exactly yeah that that those two colors which again i don't know if you mentioned you know he picked red and green because of the the way that they're contrasting colors and it's hard for the eye to distinguish those two colors together that's why he yeah. picked red and green and so he plays those colors a lot throughout the movie now you can also get to the point where you're looking too deep into it but anytime that they're in the boiler room it's always backlit with a lot of red and a lot of greens there's the whole hallway when she sees Tina from the English class and she goes out into the hall the hallway has a greenish tint to it yeah you know and then that complements the red of the blood of Tina being dragged down the hall and all that so those elements are put in there throughout the movie to kind of let you know that Freddy is always kind of there so on yeah. on that note this is something I completely forgot to do way earlier in our episode so listeners I apologize just how scary is this movie right that scene where like she sees Tina in the body bag to me was like the scariest part of this movie i would agree with yeah. that that's still like the single image in this movie that does still kind of stick with me yeah that fucked with me so much the datedness of this movie helps it but at the same time it is jump scare heavy but it's jump scare heavy with like freddy jumping out of a bush or jumping out from behind you right i'd feel like at the time that would have been terrifying but i think because there's been so much more since then and with modern movie making and everything like those jump scares didn't quite get me 
But at the same time, I've heard this movie described, and I, I would agree with this assessment, and I think it's from another movie critic or podcast. This movie would be the scariest movie ever if it weren't for the sequels. Freddy Krueger would be the scariest character in movies if it wasn't for the sequels. Who quoted that, by the way, Aaron? Do you remember? Who? That's... Patrick Bromley from F this movie. Yeah. Because this is his favorite horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I would agree with that statement. Like, this is a fucking scary horror movie. Even if the visuals and the actual, like, movie content isn't what's getting you, the concept of it, the concept of what if the boogeyman could visit you in your dreams and kill your ass in your dreams right. and there's nothing you could do about it. That concept alone is horrifying. But then you make him, like, a taunting asshole who is stalking you. Like you said earlier in the episode, Damien, like a cat playing with a mouse. That's even worse. But then also he can fuck with your brain by like talking to you through your dead friend in a body bag so that body bag scene where she's in the class dozes off in the class sees her friend beckoning her in the hallway and her friend is bloodied in a body bag and she walks out into the hallway and then sees her friend still talking her down the hallway and then hits the floor and gets dragged by an invisible force out of like the camera shot all of that is still some of the scariest shit I have watched since we started this podcast yeah this movie is a must see for film people in general this is just another masterpiece you have to watch it it's pretty fucking scary for horror newbies i'm not gonna lie to you it's a pretty terrifying movie like if you have never watched this movie like it's pretty scary and i'm kind of upset in the fact that it's almost ruined by the jump scare of nancy running around the corner and running into the hall monitor yeah and then there's that where's your hall pass screw your hall pass moment I think that if they had figured out and just, just kept the tension of her walking down the hall, going through the door and down into the boiler room, it would have been better than to break it up with that cheap jump scare right in the middle. Yeah, I would 100% agree yeah. with you. All of that leading up to like running into the hall monitor is just masterful horror, like fucking freaked me out so much. So we've talked about Craven and we keep bringing up Robert England. Do you want to dig a little bit more into Robert England's history, his background, what he he's done with horror with freddy as well as outside of freddy he started off just trying to get any gigs he could you know as an actor and because of this movie really catapulted into horror as his kind of main thing throughout his whole career but he had been in other horror stuff before this he was in toby hooper's eaten alive he was in dead and buried and galaxy of terror and he had been in a bunch of other non-horror stuff too but this is kind of the first thing that really launched him into that we had seen him just before Elm Street on uh, the TV show V, where he was Willie the Good, the Good Alien, if I remember that correctly. Yeah, and I believe when they were on like some kind of weird hiatus for that show, that's when he filmed this movie during that month break. So he kind of fit it in while they were still making that TV show. But yeah, from here, like he would be in all the Freddy sequels. He was in Dance Macabre. He was in a Toby Hooper movie that I have still not fucking seen that I need to look into like actually trying to track down called Night Terrors. Wow, uh, I'm surprised you haven't seen all of Toby Hooper's movies. <laughs> yeah. Nah, there's still like weird shit that you can't necessarily track down as easily and that's kind of true for all the masters of horror to different degrees but night terrors he plays the fucking marquis de Sade, and like it's all about fucking weird illuminati magic in egypt and shit like that so i'm hell yeah very curious about <laughs> i want to watch that now he did a, he did a, a version of the phantom of the opera yeah and then he went on to direct 976 evil yep kind of a funny 
personal aside, I think the first movie I ever remember seeing him in was The Paper Brigade, which came out like in the mid 90s. It was like a comedy adventure movie about a paper boy getting harassed by bullies. So like him and other paper kids team up with Robert England, who plays the crazy man on the street to like take down these bullies. (laughs) Hell yeah. It was kind of like Pete and Pete, but meets paper boy. (laughs) Yeah, sure. But I remember him being in that movie. And like, that was like the first thing I saw Robert England in as seven or eight year old. Yeah. He actually worked with Toby Hooper a good bit. He would also go on to be in The Mangler, which I have kind of a weird appreciation for. I want us to cover The Mangler. That movie's pretty fucking wild for a movie about a giant steam pressing laundry machine that fucking murders people. Oh, that's right. It's one of my favorite Stephen King short stories as well. Yeah. It's so like ridiculous, but it's so well done that it works. We also had just discussed Ted Levine on Silence of the Lambs, and to see Ted Levine as the like protagonist character in that is also very strange because he's got a mustache and he's kind of copy detective in that movie but still like hear him be like oh is this uh where you keep that big steam killer thing that murdered a bunch of people like just him being like drunk and weird in that movie is kind of hilarious but from this point on like this is where the elm street movies have kind of wound down and he starts getting stunt cast just as oh hey and look this movie has robert england England in it right so then like wishmaster and urban legend and hatchet all do that he's also about to be in this new season of stranger things yeah robert england seems like legitimately a good dude who like is extremely thankful for like the horror community embracing him as much as they have because he does like every fucking comic-con granted you have to pay to like have a picture with him and all that but like he does every comic-con but he's not shitty about it yeah he's He's not shitty about it like all about the fan community and everything like within the last decade or two like he is totally down to be in like shit like zombie strippers fucking strippers versus werewolves all these (laughs) like kind of ridiculous trash horror movies that obviously like want to bring him in as we grew up on your shit i noticed that he was in more than one direct to video lake placid sequel (laughs) yeah dude he was in lake placid versus anaconda which is a real (laughs) that's a real thing (laughs) holy shit i gotta look that up 2015 lake placid versus anaconda he was in it only if betty white's in it one of these weird performances that he did recently which it makes total sense why they casted him like this he showed up in injustice 2 a video game and injustice 2 is a dc fighting game that like the people from mortal kombat made it's mortal kombat except it's superheroes yeah yeah right guess who he plays in that just guess aaron i think you know exactly who he would play i mean i'm assuming he probably plays if it's a dc character he probably plays fucking scarecrow exactly he voices and plays scarecrow (laughs) okay and it's like definitely like the arkham asylum version of scarecrow where it's just basically based off freddy krueger with the glove of needle hands it pretty much just is freddy krueger but as scarecrow so yeah robert england is down for anything it seems yeah one thing about this franchise that holds true that i appreciate is his involvement he is the through line even though like all the teenager characters really become disposable like as the series goes on on it becomes more about like okay what characters are there going to be this time what's their gimmick going to be how are they going to die he becomes the main through line and to a degree i feel the same way about the hellraiser movies where i really wish kirsty had kind of stayed the throughput through those movies and instead it just became the pinhead the pinhead show and pinhead is iconic and great but not on the level as freddy krueger i would say but he's also only in like three minutes of that first movie he's not 
the main Cenobite. He's not the only Cenobite. Julia is really the main villain of that entire thing. But with this series, Freddy is the anchor. And as much as I love Heather Langenkamp in this movie, and she does come back for three, you know, I think him being kind of the anchor for the whole thing is kind of how this series would logically play out. But I do appreciate that he stuck with it because you could also see a reality where he is not fucking happy having to do one of these movies every year and not happy having to do hours of fucking makeup that tears his face up and is miserable. Dude, he came back for Freddy vs. Jason and he seemed like he had a fucking blast during that movie. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, totally. That's what I'm saying. Like, he's still willing to, like, literally put on all the fucking makeup to, like, make a cameo appearance on the Goldbergs, you know? So the fact that he stuck with it instead of just shitting on it and being like, no, I'm fucking overdoing the makeup. I'm tired of this schedule. I don't want to do these kind of movies anymore. I want to do something different. And then, like, they recast it with somebody different and how different that could be. So they did for Elm Street 2. Bob Shea got it into his head that we can get anybody in the makeup. Oh, wow. It doesn't have to be Robert Englund. Briefly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very briefly. And then it was just some, I don't know if it was a stunt guy or just a day actor, but they got him in there and he, they said he was just terrible on screen. He couldn't do the yeah, walk. I, I remember that now. Yeah. He was just stiff. He would just kind of stand there yeah. and not really like have all the personality and right. the movement that Robert England brings to the character. That's so bonkers to me because like, again, going all the way back to what I said at the beginning of this discussion, Freddy is more of a presence in this movie than any other Nightmare on Elm Street movie. So he's in it less, I would argue, than Seven other Elm Street movies. Yeah, like his actual on-screen time. But Robert England does, with the physical acting and the line delivery, just does such a good job that how could you ever put anyone else in this position? Yeah. No one else could play Freddy. Well, Bob Shea tried, apparently, yeah, yeah. and it didn't work out. That's that's bonkers to me. And I think that's probably yeah. why the remake didn't work. That's a lot of why it didn't work. Jackie Earl Haley is... It's a different presence that he's trying to bring to the character. And I don't think you have to reinvent the character. I think you just need to build a solid story around the character and embrace the character for who he is. That and, like, the direction of that movie is just fucking terrible. Whatever. <laughs> the one thing that I do find intriguing, and people keep talking about this and keep talking about it, as much as people fucking talk about, we need a new Friday the 13th movie, and it needs to be set in the snow. We need fucking snow jason like as much <laughs> as people talk about that shit because at one point a decade ago there was a script passed around where like yes it takes place during the winter at camp crystal like blood on the snow whatever as much as that gets talked about the other thing with this franchise that i constantly still hear bits and pieces of is at some point apparently robert england was asked yo who do you feel like should be your replacement for this character and he just without missing a be Kevin Bacon. Yeah. And I can totally fucking see that at this point in Kevin Bacon's career. I can totally but fucking how see old that. is Kevin Bacon compared to Robert England? Because England is... I mean, he's yeah. old. Oh, England yeah. was very young when he was making these movies initially. But Kevin Bacon, I think, has the, like, weird edge yeah. and threatening he personality. Does. And, like, he's got that demeanor where he can do that character justice. They would just have to, like, get a fucking story that works. Yeah. They would have to replace Kevin Bacon pretty soon, too, because he can't be much younger than Robert England is. In in real life yeah they're probably pretty close yeah he's he's getting up there yeah he's upper 50s early 60s 
Because you got to remember, Kevin Bacon was in the first Friday the 13th movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's an interesting notion, but that's part of what, again, makes this first movie so fucking good is all the pieces are there, pure, uncut, this is the original nugget of the entire thing. And it's just kind of diminishing returns to varying degrees from there. You know, and that's what is so good about the third movie is it evolves the story. Yeah. It at least tries to push the story into a new direction and focus on like a different way of engaging with Freddy. You know, the entire idea of like these kids are all going to band together and they're going to like take on Freddy in their dreams and like bring the fight to him on his own turf is very intriguing. You know, as much as that movie is the one that like set up all the characters having gimmicks and their deaths are based on their gimmicks and the one-liners, that movie still really fucking works too because they keep the Freddy character still like scary and a threat and evolve the story to push forward instead of just rehashing like the same formula. And it's the first one I think where they give him his backstory. Yeah. Yeah. Bastard son of a hundred maniacs and yeah, all that craziness. Yeah. I I do love that they really keep his backstory just to the point of he was a child murderer. All the parents of the kids banded together, did vigilante justice, killed his ass, and that's all the backstory you get is he was just a child murderer. Now he's back for revenge. Although it did crack me up. I mean, it cracked me up is like the wrong way to say it. How but... her mom still fucking owns the knives. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, that's some like dark trophy shit yeah, right like, there. Like what? oh yeah, this guy we murdered, I kept his fucking knife like, hand. When her ex-husband is a cop? Come on. Yeah, really. What I was about to say was I thought about it when she was like, yeah, he was killing kids in the neighborhood. Bananas, right? Well, after like 20, 20 kids died, right. I was, in the neighborhood. fuck, yeah. 20 kids in the same neighborhood? God damn, were there any kids left? Right. That would have been like national world news. Like if one guy yeah. killed that many kids in one neighborhood. Her exact words are at least 20 kids. Yeah. <laughs> so we lost count at around 20. Well, I vaguely remember like one of the Freddy movies. It might have even been Freddy's Dead, the last one before Freddy vs. Jason, where like the beginning of the movie is set where like Freddy has killed literally every kid on Elm Street except for one. Yeah. And like that's how the movie starts. Like, what are y'all doing? Like, why is this city even a still a city then? Just leave him to have that. So weird, unrelated shit too. Damien and I were talking about this while we were waiting on you to jump on. Derek, just right off the top of your head where do you feel like this movie is set isn't it in ohio yeah and that's what cracked me up because i don't know that i've ever realized oh this takes place in ohio so the only way i put that together is from on and off looking stuff up about lore of freddy krueger okay but you read it like nothing in this yeah movie, no i didn't like not from the movie they don't mention no. that it's from ohio in this first movie it's only yeah. mentioned in the sequels that it's ohio yeah that scene where like they're talking and she's reading the book to like how set up home defense traps that looks like it could be in florida well so that's what i was about to say like my entire life seeing these fucking movies on cable on and off and renting them and like i have seen bits and pieces of these since always frankly it wasn't until several years back i borrowed damien's dvd box set to just chug through the entire fucking series and actually watch all of them in order front to back did you include freddy vs jason 
Yeah, totally. Good. <laughs> I have seen these movies my entire life. Never have a fucking thought about, oh, this is Ohio? No. Because my dad's family's from Ohio. I know what Ohio looks like. And this movie is SoCal to the fucking brim because that's where they filmed it. Yeah. There's palm trees everywhere. Yeah. Pastel yep. colors everywhere. Like all these houses. Like it's all so fucking California. And it cracks me up that they're like, oh, yeah, this is uh, Ohio. But it's kind of the same thing, I guess, with Haddonfield, Illinois. You know, it's also the same neighborhood that this was shot in. One of the last things I wanted to just throw out there, like, once again, we have another horror masterpiece that has a fucking runtime of only an hour and a half. 91 minute movie. That's like an in and out. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's tight. How are these movies so good with that such short of a runtime? Like, if you can nail a, a good horror movie in that time, you're golden. Yeah, I mean, it's just economy of filmmaking and, like, knowing what you absolutely need in the story to move it forward and not having a lot of extraneous time to it. So, yeah, I mean, it horror doesn't have to be long to be effective, certainly. Right. Even their exposition scenes in this movie were well done and seemed like they weren't wasting time. Like, when she's getting the sleep study done, him having, like, that whole conversation about like what's the nature of dreams still seems relevant to plot or in the fucking school scene they do that trope that you and i always clown on Aaron, where like it cuts to a school scene i know lauren talked about it too them talking about something that just happens to be super relevant to like what's happening in the movie yeah. but then the, they turn it on its head in this one when it becomes part of the dream because the student who is reciting that line from shakespeare yeah. recites it in her dream but does it really cryptically and nightmarishly like so it fits with the rest of the tone of that scene so yeah like it's very impressive that these movies that are so well done are such a tight running time and so the one thing i wanted to bring up is how do you feel seeing the end of the movie and if you can think back to how the movie started was this movie in its entirety a dream yeah i personally am in my own head canon as much as the sequels for better or for worse as they are i still count them i still think they are absolutely canon so i don't think think the entire movie is a dream just for the sake of the sequels themselves and her coming back in dream warriors and all the stuff that happened in this movie being canon in that way if this movie never had a sequel if this movie did stand alone on its own that idea to me would be one i'd be throwing around in my head a lot more than i do right because if i understood correctly that was wes craven's original idea was that she would emerge from the house at the end and it's a bright sunny day get in the car and drive off and it's the happy end and everybody's alive. Yeah. The, the movie starts with Tina's nightmare, but then the sort of real world part kicks in. Which, talk about a hell of a way to introduce a horror movie, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Tina, with Tina's nightmare, like the opening credits are the fucking thing that's the basis of the horror yeah. of the movie. But at four minutes, we get the nursery rhyme. Yep. It's a bright day, but it's kind of foggy and the camera pans from the girl's jumping rope to the kids driving up in the red car. Yeah. And at the end of the movie we have the sort of the reverse of that uh where she comes from the house talks to her mother there's that weird fog again she gets in the car and they drive off and there's the girls again with the nursery rhyme yeah say they just kept it like that they just drive off that's still an effective ending because even just having like the little girls playing and like singing that song alone would make it creepy and cryptic and it you could keep it in that weird david lynch it's too sunny out a little too perfect again going back to like maybe even uncanny valley but in the aspect of the perfect day yeah. yeah this something's off about this as much as i do love it you didn't necessarily need freddy's arm ripping through the window and dragging ronnie blakely's body through yeah you could have just left it a little more open-ended and still would have 
gotten the message you were trying to leave or the open-ended ending you're trying to get right yeah i agree with that like if the dummy getting ripped to the window had not been in there i think it would have been a little bit of a stronger ending again i do love that so much when it happens yeah it's goofy as shit i guess the last thing to kind of wrap it up you were asking a second ago about you know where the state of the franchise is now because i know like they've continued it in comic books and stuff but like it's been a minute since we had like new nightmare on elm street anything it is also fucking wild to me that the like remake of this movie is now 11 years old funny story about that because it came out what 2010 i think was a remake yeah i remember in college aaron you being hype as shit about it because like you were on board for the casting and then i remember like it came out and then like the next weekend we were hanging out i was like so aaron like how'd you like the new nightmare on elm street the remake i knew you were like anticipating it and you're like bro let's just not talk about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm always sketchy about remakes remakes can often be good, right? Like, the thing is a fucking masterpiece, but I was very intrigued strictly because of the cast. Yeah, well, and I remember you liking the trailer for the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, the trailer was pretty fucking good. And then, like, you went and saw it, and you were like, oh. Yeah. (laughs) It missed the point, like a lot of these remakes seem to do. Yeah, so to kind of wrap it up, let's kind of talk about like where the series is now. So obviously there was the remake in 2010, which bombed because it's fucking bad trash. And since then, nothing. So at this point, do we kind of know where things are at the moment? Uh, From what I understand that uh, New Line tried to do some stuff and couldn't get anything launched. And so the rights reverted back to Wes Craven's estate and Ah, uh, they are actively shopping uh, ideas around. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's still out there in the wild, just nothing active at the moment. I had kind of heard some things here and there, but I wasn't sure of for sure what was going on. I'm kind of surprised we haven't heard anything even now, given the recent new Halloween movie that just came out and did really well. And the fact that we're already getting Halloween kills pretty soon, maybe this year, I think. Well, Halloween kills was supposed to come out this past fall but you know thanks COVID COVID, yeah so it's coming out this fall instead Michael Myers is back in pop culture awareness so I'm a little surprised like you know people I mean maybe it is a part of it is due to COVID like maybe would it be seeing a lot more like oh well what about Jason what about Freddy all this if COVID hadn't like shut down a lot of stuff including Hollywood I'm curious because I would like to see you know, a studio like, let's say, Blumhouse, for instance, get together a reasonable budget and get a writer-director on board who is passionate about it, but also has a fresh take on it and can do something kind of visually interesting. And Hey, hopefully by the time this episode airs, Synchronicity, that our show seems to always stumble upon, they've announced new Freddy er, Freddy movie and this person's cast, and this is the director. Yeah, who the fuck (laughs) knows? That's very much a possibility now. Okay, so that's pretty much it. Uh, Once again, huge movie, lots to talk about, um, but we wanted to take a personal look at everything and you know discuss it with Damien because he's been with this through a lot of his life so once again thanks a lot for coming on yeah thank you appreciate it this will certainly not be the last time you are coming on the show so yeah once again big thanks to Damien on this episode we are watch if you dare a horror movie podcast hosted by a coward myself and a movie monster boy Aaron in which we discuss fears phobias and cultural relevancy Um, you can find us at pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts Uh, Apple podcast seems to be the big one please continue rating and reviewing us on there pod chaser 
Spotify, Amazon, like any of the podcatchers. You can catch us at our socials at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. Find our Spotify music playlist filled with all kinds of spooky tunes. The link is on our Twitter and also on our Podbean website. And once again, thanks to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for our bumps at the beginning and end of each episode. He is at Partygator on Bandcamp. He does a lot of shoegaze stuff that sounds great. With that, Aaron. One, two, Sally's coming for you. I'm your boyfriend now, Sally. <laughs> <laughs>